0: Join me in First Peter, chapter 2. We'll start with the question, who are you? Who are you? You've probably been asked that somewhere along the way. When asked, you might give your name, hoping that perhaps that will ring a bell or make a family connection, uh, especially what we call our surname, that last name, that tends to have some kind of lineage to it, some traceable family tree. I have a framed kind of little couple of pages from a magazine in my office from the name Godshall going back to the ninth century when it was pronounced a little different. Uh, but it reminds me of, of an identity. Um, sometimes our name does that for us. You might tell someone your occupation to help connect with who you are, allowing your identity to, in a sense, be carried by what you do. You might tell people at times where you go to church. In some conversations, the identity that you're seeking to communicate is, I'm a part of this body of believers. Some of you might indicate where you're from. In a small town, you'd say, Oh, I'm from over off such and such a street. Or in our Midwest conglomerate, somebody might say, Hey, I'm a Southerner hailing from the South. It's their identity. You answer this question to suit the context at times. At a monthly pastor's fellowship I attend, I'm identified as one of the baptistic guys because there's a lot of Baptists and a lot of Presbyterians, and a lot of, a lot of grenades are lobbed across the aisle, so to speak, at times. On Red Friday, you might identify as a Chiefs fan by sporting your KC sweatshirt. It fits the context. There are times when I don't use my name or really anything about me. I could be at Evan's soccer game, and I'll tell another adult, I'm Evan's dad. Because that's the context. They're rooting for the kids out on the field, and they know me now by my son. Who are you? Our answer often de- is defined by the context of the question. But this morning, I want us to wrestle with our identity. In, in, in literally just recent years, this word has become the dividing line of of the sane and the insane. Identity, you would think it would have strength of definition, and yet people have come to believe that by mere declaration, they can change their identity of male or female. We all understand that's absurd. It defies the truth Of God's creation and I hope even in the absurdity and and the frustration of how it's so promoted to us everywhere you turn I hope we can also manufacture compassion imagine being so dark and so confused as to not even be able to believe your DNA how blinding is the lie of the devil How how eager is he to keep people from God's goodness in literally shaping them in the womb, Psalm 139 says, the way he wants them. So there's there's cause for great compassion there, but we all understand the frustration of, of a message that so tramples on the idea of identity. It would help us to be very sure of our identity in Jesus Christ by faith in Christ, especially in this letter that Peter is writing to the church, telling them, listen, you're going to be ostracized by the world, especially if you're Jesus' disciples, and he's gathering you together in the upper room, and you have a last supper, and he's talking about his death and his departure, and then you're walking with him to the garden, and he starts praying, and he says things like, The world's going to hate you because it hated me and it's going to persecute you. But I'm not going to take you out of the world. I'm sending you into the world, but you'll be sanctified by truth. You see, as pilgrims, hearing Peter's letter and hearing Jesus' words, it's good to know with certainty, I'm with Jesus. I am in Christ. That's my identity. So when the world says, oh, you're a hater, that, that's not going to stick. Or to get a little Pentecostal, I don't receive that, okay? No, that's not who I am. I am in Christ. Well, you're unpatriotic, and that's not American. Listen, those definitions aren't going to cause me to change my position. I know who I am in Christ. This must become our confidence. We must be certain of our identity. By God's grace, you may not be confused about your gender. But as a Christian, perhaps there are times when you're concerned about building your image. You feel that you have to project an identity of being something. And so pastors crumble under the weight of artificial success definitions. Parents cower in fear of being thought a failure if one of their children does not profess faith. Teenagers lonely and seeking for an identity will flock to a violent gang or, or maybe to a look. Think of, in, 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 in my years, it was the goth dressing in black. It was an identity. It gave them something that they longed for. A victim of abuse can feel worthless or defiled. A single adult can battle with a sense of being second class in the church. Every one of us in some way longs for this sense of belonging and we're desperate for an identity and we work hard. We, we shop for the clothes because we want an identity. We long and we covet and we envy at times because we want an identity. And now add to that the world constantly saying, no, that sounds foolish, that sounds stupid, I don't want to believe that. Your, your religion's nonsense and if we're not careful, we we cower and we get this inferiority complex. Peter's saying, no. Do you know who you are in Christ? Listen for God's solution to our concerns about who I am and my identity as we read our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, received mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your spirit and by your word, call sinners to salvation and give them a place in your family and give us as your people great confidence that our identity with Christ is sufficient for our satisfaction, for our joy, and for our hope of heaven. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 begins, as you come to him, a living stone. It's setting up the truth of who we are in Christ, but those simple words are capturing your coming to faith, your conversion, your salvation, As you come to him who is this living stone, Christ by his resurrection became a living stone. Not just a rock, but in a a twist of metaphors, a rock that is alive, a living stone on which the church would be built. So Peter said back in chapter one, verse three, that we are born again to a living hope. He adds in verse 23 that that happened by the living word of God. And now he says, you're coming to faith and your new birth is because of the living stone and that makes you living stones. Verse 5, that's a lot of life Peter's talking about. And indeed it is. We are alive in Christ. His resurrection life is ours. When we repent of sin and believe that Jesus is our only hope of righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins, and the hope of eternal life. When we come to him as the resurrected Lord and Savior, now the rest of the text makes sense. So, that introductory phrase is our theme. We must build our lives and our identity on Jesus. We came to him. We die to self and we live in Christ. He becomes our identity. We're joint heirs with Jesus, we're brothers with him, we're children of God. We're no longer the father or the children of our father, the devil. We're part of God's family. Our identity has changed. So don't miss that introduction. We come to him who is this living stone. It's assumed in the text, but it shapes the rest of our paragraph so that we will understand I must build my life on Christ by repenting of my sin and believing in Jesus, but now I build my identity on him. And you are all those things we talked about at the beginning and a bunch of other descriptions but they are all under the umbrella of I am a Christian. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I follow Jesus. Now here's the question that Peter wants to answer. Yes, you must build your identity on Jesus Christ. But what does my identity with Christ do for me? And I don't mean to ask that in a selfish way, like, what's in it for me? But if, if you were to interview for a job and didn't take look at several companies, you would be asking, okay, what does the job entail and what are the benefits? How is this job better than this one? This one might pay better, but this one might give a lot more freedom and time off. And, and I actually want that with my family more than I want the money. So I'll consider the benefits with wisdom a question that we should be asking is, this is great, build your identity in Christ, but does does that do something for me now when the world is saying, that's nonsense, your religion is so old-fashioned, you don't even fit here. I want that identity with Christ to do something for me when I feel like an exile, an outsider, a foreigner. So what does my identity with Christ do for me? Peter answers with five benefits of your identity with Christ. Number one, belonging to God and his people. Belonging to God and his people, to God's people. Again, we look at verse five, you yourselves, Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. It's kind of the main subject and verb. As you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, as you do that, you are built up as living stones, as a spiritual house. You yourselves, it's plural. It's not an individual focus, which salvation in the scriptures rarely is. Other than the initial act of my response to Jesus, immediately you become part of the body of Christ, the family, the church, the people of God. And it's not that God doesn't care about you. It just broadens our horizons to realize we are God's people. So it's plural, you all, you yourselves are being built as the spiritual house. In the South, they might say, y'all, or even broader, all y'all. And it includes everybody. So he's, he's addressing the corporate church and saying, you all are being built up as living stones to form this spiritual house. We heard that in Ephesians 2 as well. That somehow this this place, which is actually people, is where God dwells. You see, that study of tabernacle or place is significant in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it it was a tent that they made. And that gave way to Solomon's temple. That one's destroyed, and we have the next temple. And that one wasn't great like Solomon's, and so Herod spends... Decades building another one in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. But Jesus said things like, tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it up again. And he was building on that imagery of Old Testament where that was the place where God would come down and dwell with his people. Or at least communicate with them. So the tabernacle when it was opened up, opening day is filled with the glory of God like smoke. Same thing with the temple. All their best laid plans collapsed as the glory of the Lord fills the place and they can't do anything but worship. God met with them. Jesus' point is, he was the temple. God was dwelling with his people in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus leaves and we still have temple language. There's at least one reference to us individually being the temple 1 Corinthians, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But most every other reference to the temple is the corporate nature of the church. Because the church is still where God meets his people through Jesus Christ. Peter is saying you are being built up as individual stones now into one big house and it's where God dwells with his people. This plurality is echoed in the nature of the language of verse 9 where we hear of a race of people, a priesthood, a collection of priests, a nation, a people group, all words of big groups. God says when you come to faith in Jesus, you become part of his kingdom, part of his people. You are living out your faith in a context of a community of believers. And just like the experiences of war in the trenches, World War I and II, the jungles of Korea or Vietnam, or the deserts of Afghanistan. We're to be this band of brothers united in this cause, this cause worth laying down our lives for. That's the picture of God's people, the church. As you come to Christ, you're going to have to get used to all the other Christians around you. God designed his church as the place where we live out our Christian faith. So 1 Peter chapter 2 is this God-endorsed design for the church. You don't live the Christian life in a vacuum. If all of your Christianity is in solitary meditation, Bible reading, and prayer, you have failed to live out God's purpose for your life. The monks didn't have it right. We're not heading to the monastery and showing God just how spiritual I am by doing all these things alone. No, the idea is you do all these things together. So Ephesians 4 says we strive to get it right, to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, till we all come to a maturity of the faith. I'm tempted to say, so what, when you tell me you're really excelling in your Christian life? Because the great goal of Ephesians 4 is that in doing that, you're bringing others with you till we all come to maturity in the faith. It's not a solo sport, it's a team effort. No Christian can forsake the gathering of God's people. You can forsake the gathering, just don't call yourself a Christian. Because inherent in the design, As you come to Christ, you are built up as a spiritual house. You can't have coming to Christ without being part of the house. It's one and the same. Now, make no mistake, God's people don't always make it easy on you. They aren't always easy to love. What do you do then? When churches are imperfect, when they fail us, when their leaders hurt us, when the people in the churches hurt us, what do we do with imperfect churches? Well, we attend them, as you are today. You see, you weren't so lovable either. When Christ died for you, you were actually his enemy. So lean into life in the church as a family, pursuing all the giving and receiving of everyday relationships where you have to practice love and forgiveness and grace. This is the first benefit of an identity with Christ. As you come to him and say, I'm with Christ, you are built up as living stones in the spiritual house, part of God's church. Second benefit, worship through God's son. Again, verse five. Second part of the verse, having been built up, as a spiritual house, that's to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The second benefit that is ours is we get to worship. The language of worship is there in our text. A priesthood. Sacrifices. Acceptable to God. Two ways in which this worship is a benefit to us. Number one, access to God. This is what is meant by calling us a priesthood. After all, we don't represent anyone before God. Even as a pastor, it's not, okay, you come to me and hold on, I'll go talk to God about this like Moses going up on the mountain and I'll come back with an answer no in the New Testament especially in in the big B capital B Baptists you know we we would say part of Baptist denominational definition is the priesthood of the believer well that's not just Baptist that's Bible you are a priest you can go and talk to God That doesn't discount at all pastoral authority and value. It simply says, no, you don't wait for a pastor to commune with God. So being a priesthood, Peter says, doesn't mean you're representing someone to God. It's simply borrowing from the Old Testament picture of they're the ones that had access to God. You see, when they built that tabernacle, it was not only the tent, but it also had the fence around it. And one end had an opening, and you would bring your sacrifice to that opening, and the priest said, I'll take it from here. And he would take your sacrifice to the altar, make the sacrifice, and take care of it all. But he's the one that made the sacrifice, he's the one that could enter the holy place and burn incense or partake of the bread or keep the candles burning. And once a year, he was the one that could go into the holy of holies. But you didn't have that kind of access in the Old Testament. Only the priest did. So Peter, in pulling the Old Testament imagery into the New Testament here, is saying, listen, you're the ones who have access. You're a priesthood. Your benefit for having come to Christ as the living stone is you have access to God for worship. Oh, we do it together here, of course, but you can do it all week long. You can belt out, my chains are gone as you're riding down 470 to triangle traffic. Let them see us singing at the top of your lungs. Lo- Put your windows down, let them hear it, right? That's okay. You can worship anytime. We have access to God. You are a priest. That's our benefit. But another benefit of worship is not only knowing this access to God, but we also know acceptance by God. Your worship, verse five tells us, is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Christ. So sufficient is his work, so adept is he at being our high priest that we have not only access to God, but full acceptance by God. It's like the picture of Esther in the Old Testament being told by her cousin, uncle, Mordecai, you're going to have to go before the king. And she knows I can't do that. If he doesn't extend that golden scepter as a sign of acceptance, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out of a job and maybe out of a life. And yet she goes, believing that for such a time as this, God had called her to the kingdom. And she goes and receives that sign of acceptance. Yes, you have access, but it's another thing to know you have full acceptance. Esther had to stew on that, and with every step toward the throne, wonder if she was allowed, if she was wanted there. But Hebrews tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace because we have such a high priest as Jesus Christ. We have access and we know acceptance. You don't have perfect acceptance from the person that you love the very most. Who is that? You can tell me how they've disappointed you, how they've not liked your ideas, not liked your clothes, not liked the weight you gained, not liked whatever else they didn't like. There wasn't full acceptance, though that's the great goal of love. We only know this kind of belonging and acceptance in our worship of our Heavenly Father, and it's through Jesus Christ. We can worship through Christ. Think of it this way. You have an audience with God for your petitions, for your praise, for your confusion, for your pain, for your thanksgiving, for your worship. Because Jesus is alive today to speak on your behalf. So believe it when Peter says you're a holy priesthood that can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a benefit. So what does identity with Christ do for me? Number three, confidence in God's faithfulness. Confidence in God's faithfulness. Verse 6, Peter is now going to cite the prophet Isaiah to prove his point that you are built on this living stone. Identify with Christ. This is the way to live your life. And he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. And we'll see the contrast, those who don't believe in a moment. You will not be put to shame, honor for you who believe. Now there's a translation question here. If you're using your King James Bible or the New King James, you might see in verse 7, he is precious, the cornerstone, Jesus. He is precious. However, when I read it, you heard he will not be put to shame, so the honor is to you, So what do we do with this? What's going on here? How can one translation say, he is precious, and the other says, I'm honored? Uh, The translation, he is precious, is borrowed from Isaiah 28, 16, where the Lord God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So the translation in First Peter, he is precious, is true. However, I think it has been improved in the modern English translations in recent, recent decades. The word precious means honor or value. It morphed a little, actually, in English, even since, since the King James English, because it has taken on an element of fragility, like China is precious. Whereas your everyday kind of bakeware or plasticware, you know, you can replace it. It took on an, an element of being fragile or tender. Uh, and so babies are precious. And certain aspects of love, we, we say that's precious, but it, it kind of gets cutified, right? It, it doesn't come across as strong or, or big, but the word precious has to do with honor and reverence, value. It'd be like precious walking into Fort Knox and seeing piles of gold blocks and thinking, oh, isn't that precious? So there's a little morph in the word and it it affects our translation even. So while it's accurate to say he is precious, I would argue the Bible has already done that. In verse 6, the scripture said, God is laying a cornerstone, chosen and precious. So we already know he is precious. And there it's the same word, precious. But it's used as an adjective to describe that cornerstone. It's a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now in verse 7, that word from precious in verse 6, it's the same word. But our Bibles usually have it different here. It says it is honor for you because here it's not an adjective. It's the noun. It's the subject of the sentence. Honor is for you. So what's going on? What does it mean that we receive honor or value for believing? Whoever believes will not be put to shame. Instead, it's honor to you. Well, I wish they wouldn't have even used honor. I wish they would have used value or treasure because the idea here is for you who believe, who put everything into this identity in Christ, for those of you who do that, your treasure is that this will last. This is worth it. This is worth investing everything you are, everything you have, Go after this, your identity in Christ. It's a a treasure to you. But it's going to go on to say, to those who don't believe, it's just the opposite. It's the greatest detriment. Christ is a stumbling block and a stone that will crush and judge and destroy you. So the contrast is, what is this stone to me? In belief, it's this great treasure. It is worth staking my life on. In unbelief, it's this great threat. It's what I will give an account to. And so if your Bible reads, he is precious, know that that's true. But know this, that God laid a cornerstone in Zion on Mount Calvary so that you could be stable and secure in Christ. That's the point. You are receiving the value and the treasure of Christ by faith. So you are blessed. You are honored. You receive this great value, this worth, which is Jesus Christ. So our point is, the benefit is we have confidence in God's faithfulness. What do I mean by that? First, we have confidence because of the certainty of the stone. God says, look or behold. Now, I always think that seems redundant. Couldn't God do anything and we should look and behold? But somehow, at times, we get this special notice, like you'd better not miss this. God says, look, I, I am laying a stone. I am putting in specific place I am ordaining the word means I am purposing putting it in place I'm doing that and what I'm doing is something that is chosen and precious so you can be sure it's dependable our confidence in God's faithfulness from this text means that stone isn't going anywhere In God's design, it will do exactly what he intended it to do. And that's why Jesus could say, I'm going to build my church on the cornerstone of my work and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's because it's certain. The certainty of the stone gives us confidence. But there's a second reason for our confidence and it's the certainty of my standing on the stone. Look at the end of verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame because you have this incredible treasure, this value. Not not be put to shame. In the Greek, much like the Hebrew, there's a way to emphasize something and, and you just put it in there twice. So Peter grabs up two words and they both mean the same thing, not. And so in the Greek, it's kind of redundant. Whoever believes in him will not not be ashamed. In English, we would just say never. Not only will you not be ashamed, what I mean is not ever or never be ashamed. It's this emphasis. Again, saying your identity in Christ is everything you need. Stand on him. You'll not be ashamed. We learned it as little children. In a different way, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. Well, the rains came down as the floods came up, you remember, but the house on the rock stood firm. The concluding verse was, so build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Peter's argument. I don't think he had the same jingle, but he had the same truth. Build your life on Christ. Let your identity not necessarily be Republican or plumber or surname or favorite hobby. But first and foremost, my identification is I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's where I build my life. But the foolish man built his house upon the sand, you remember singing, and that's the rest of verse 7. It's an honor for you who believe those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, their unbelief doesn't change the fact that Jesus is king. He still became the cornerstone. They just don't believe him. And so Peter adds that cornerstone is also to those who don't believe a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble the text says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that's a pretty big thought, destined to disobey. But we see in it the familiar biblical theme of God's eternal purpose carried out through human responsibility. That theme is the great answer to why, why do we pray again? If God's in charge of everything and works everything to the counsel of his will, why in the world would I add anything to that? Because the divine purpose is often carried out in human responsibility. You do it because he tells you to. And the mystery of how you're praying affects what he does need not be resolved. And so here we see divine sovereignty. God appointed it. The word is they were destined... What we don't realize in the English is it's the exact same word as in verse 6. When God says, I am laying the cornerstone. So the word laying and the word destined are the exact same Greek word. They both mean to ordain, to purpose, to put in its exact place. Divine sovereignty, they were destined to disobey. Human responsibility. They disobeyed. They willfully, eagerly chose to disobey. So just hear them both destined and disobedient. Divine sovereignty, always in control of everything, nothing escapes, nothing outside of his purpose, and yet human responsibility. They will stand before God and give account. This great theme unfolds in the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter, preaching in Acts, says, You crucified him with wicked, evil hands, but God predestined his death on the cross. So God determined his death, but disobedient men accomplished it. Divine purpose accomplished in human responsibility We are accountable to God, and yet we can never, in obedience or disobedience, in belief for eternal life or unbelief for eternal death, we can never thwart the plan of God. He's that big. He's that sovereign. And that is great relief to those who trust him. My question is, why emphasize this element of sovereignty here? It just seems almost like we're jumping to this, oh no, we're going to go down the rabbit trail of sovereignty. I thought we were talking about our identity in Christ and our confidence in him. Well, I think this is the answer. Remember the letter is to exiles who feel like foreigners, who are facing hostility, suffering, opposition, Remember that we're talking about a disobedience of the evildoers that took the form of seething bitterness, an unjust trial, a horrific crucifixion. We're talking about a disobedience that opposes God's plan, that opposes righteousness, that opposes the church. So Peter is reminding this people who may also face seething bitterness and unjust trials and persecution, that God is in control, that he reigns even over the wicked intentions of those who will persecute this first century church. God's sovereignty is intended not for a theological debate in the church as Peter is writing to, but as a stark comfort to them because they are facing a world that doesn't like them and they know how that can end. They know what it did to Jesus. So they're comforted by the reality that come what may, God is in complete control. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and understand the complete calm of people who could trust God to be in complete control of evil, that yanked a chain and opened the gates that let the animals out to come and devour them. They were okay because they knew what Peter had told them. Listen, God is in complete control and he destined some for disobedience, but that has no, ba- they can't touch you if you're identified with Christ. It's a comfort. This is a benefit of confidence that is ours in God's faithfulness. Number four, purpose from God's choosing. The choosing is obvious enough. Verse nine, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. How does this give us purpose? Well, each of these descriptions is God word. You're a priesthood. That means you serve and worship God. You're a holy nation. That means you're set apart for some reason. You're a people for his own possession. When you reach into a toolbox, you take a tool for a purpose. God says, I want you for my possession. I have a purpose. So all these descriptions are God word. And the benefit of our identity in Christ then in coming to him as a living stone I have a purpose. I know what I'm supposed to be. I know who I am. I don't meander aimlessly in this desert wasteland of trying to find myself. I know exactly who I am in Christ. Our purpose is seen first in a life of obedience. Verse 9 starts with the word, but. But you are a chosen Nation, a race. So what is the contrast with? I know what I am now, but what is it contrasted with? It has to be something back there. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what was first in that verse? Well, they were destined, of course, but what did they do? They disobeyed the word. So there's our previous Idea: Those who are disobedient to the word, the word of contrast, but, and now you. They were disobedient to the word, but you are obedient to it. You have a purpose. You do what God says. You belong to him. So our obedience is actually purpose. Secondly, our purpose is seen in our message of hope. Live a life of obedience and let that be known and seen. But proclaim a message of hope. Tell the story of your former darkness. Oh, we don't need all the gory details. We're not trying to celebrate the wickedness that had you in chains, but certainly talk about chains and talk about darkness. And then the contrast is freedom and light. Marvelous light, Peter calls it. Our dog loves the light, the sunlight, and she follows it around as it comes in the front window to one chair and then to another chair and then to the rug and then to the front door if we open it up and it comes through the glass door. She soaks up the sun, the warmth of it. Peter says, light is marvelous. To be in the darkness of the cold with my guilt and my shame is miserable. It's a dungeon, and so let's push it all into the light. Let's feel the cleanliness and the warmth of it. Peter says, verse 9, here's why you've been chosen, made a priesthood, a nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In short, this is the story of every Christian. Once you were not A believer, and now you are. Once you were in darkness, now you're in light. Tell people how excellent God must be to save a wretch like you. If we're gonna sing it, let's make it part of our story and really believe it that we were a miserable wretch and God saved us. Tell that story. Wesley did. When he wrote, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. So I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Peter saying, if your story is your follower of Jesus Christ, then tell the story of light piercing the darkness. Tell the story of your chains falling off. Identify as one of Jesus' rescue stories. Final benefit, really a conglomerate of all the others, the wonder at God's mercy. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Language is taken from the story of Hosea. He has two sons, and by all indications, neither one of them were his own. His wife was an adulterer, even a even a a hired prostitute. And he has these sons, and their names represent these conditions, not my people, and not having mercy. And it was a picture of Israel. They had broken God's covenant. So technically, they can no longer claim to belong to God, to be his people. But the prophet Hosea and his love for this unfaithful wife was this picture of God's unending love that would draw them back to covenant relationships. Beyond that, the rest of the New Testament interprets this story to also mean that God's love was going to extend beyond just the nation of Israel and go even to the Gentiles, to those barbarians, to all the other peoples that the Jews thought were so unclean. So verse 10 is a continuation of our story. Once you were not a people of God, once you didn't taste mercy, but now... You do. You know what mercy is because it reached down and saved you. He made you his, his child, so you're the people of God. This is the gospel that Peter just kind of calls us all back to. This is your identity in Christ. Here are the benefits of it. But just remember, it, at any point in your Christian life, yours is the benefit to just look back and wonder at the mercy of God in saving sinners through Christ which is the gospel. What a wonder our salvation is. We begin with the question, what does my identity in Christ do for me? Let me close by rephrasing that question. It could be asked another way when one realizes that being a Christian may result in scorn, may result in hostility or even persecution. And the question is this, why would anyone want to be a Christian? If this is the kind of life we're gonna live, Peter's answers are, listen, the benefits outweigh the hardships. Belonging to God's people, worshiping through God's son, confidence in God's faithfulness, purpose from God's choosing, and the wonder at God's mercy, just to name a few. So may God help us this week to long for our identity to be first and foremost Christ. No matter what that costs me, it'll be worth it. The benefits outweigh every potential drawback Satan could throw my way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, spare us this week from the futile efforts of trying to shape our own identity to others, to the world, to the church, Help us to lay aside everything the world has to offer, like Moses, refusing the pleasures of Egypt to simply identify with the people of God. That's what we want this morning. We have come to Christ, and now help us to embrace the benefits that are ours in him. May we say, with full assurance and full faith, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Hallelujah. And God's people said, amen.